Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about anthropology and decolonizing design. Today on the show, I am joined by the design anthropologist, public intellectual, and design advocate, Dory Tunstall. Dory is currently the Dean of Design at Ontario College of Art and Design and previously taught design and anthropology classes at Swinburne University and the University of Illinois, Chicago. I've been following Dory's work for a while now and was really interested in her background as an anthropologist and how that has influenced her work across many areas of the design field, from graphic design to interaction design to writing to teaching. Unlike some of the other designers who have been on the show who go on to study anthropology after working as a designer, Dory is the opposite. She comes from anthropology and brings this education into the de- into the design field. And that's where we start this conversation. We talk about her educational experience and how she discovered design and how design became a way for her to work through things she was thinking about as an anthropologist. We talk about what designers can learn from anthropologists and the shift that can happen from being the expert to being the student. And then we talk a lot about decolonizing design in the second part of this conversation. Dory has done a lot of work while at OCAD in decolonizing that curriculum and thinking through what it truly means to decolonize design and the design field. And I just found the way she's thinking about this incredibly smart and, and incredibly exciting. And so I'm really interested to find ways to incorporate some of these ideas into my own teaching as well. Remember, Scratching the Surface just relaunched our membership program over on Patreon. For the last few years, this show has been entirely supported through listeners. And so now we're making it even easier for you to help sustain the show. We're offering three monthly tiers for just $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and then $10 for super fans. They give you all sorts of uh, access to bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episode releases, full transcripts of every episode, as well as exclusive interviews and bonus content each month. All of this helps financially support the show and helps keep it going. And so if you like scratching the surface, if you would like to see it continue and see more of it in the world, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to sign up and support the show. It truly means so much to me. Thank you as always for listening. And here's my conversation with Dory Tunstall. Describe yourself as a design anthropologist, and I would like to know what a design anthropologist is and how you kind of think about uh, what a design anthropologist does. So as a design anthropologist, the easiest way to explain it is that I look at the relationship between values, design, and experience. So I look Mm -hmm. at what are the values that we are wanting to articulate, you know, let's say from a cultural perspective how they're actually made manifest through design, right? So we know we have a value because someone's designed something that gives us that experience of that value. And so this kind of goes into like an endless looping cycle where, (laughs) you know, I'll I'll look values, design, experience. And then if there's a misalignment between the design and the experience, then we go and redesign it so that that's better alignment. But the place where I tend to operate is that I look at if there's a misalignment between the value and the experience, how do we go back and rearticulate a different set of values or mm. alternative values and then create designs and experiences around them? And so the easiest way I talk about it is like the work I did for Design for Democracy. Mm-hmm. 
which feels like such a long time ago, uh, <laughs> that um, again, so democracy is a value that we then um, experience through the ballots that we use, our interactions with the post office, uh, mm -hmm. the way we interact with a government building. And if our experiences of those designs are such that they don't make us feel like our vote counts, they don't make us feel like uh, we are to be served, right? They don't mm -hmm. make us feel like we belong in these spaces as kind of citizens or whatever. Then those things need to be redesigned or we need to really think about is is democracy the actual value that we're, we're putting forth right. in our society, right? I'm interested in, in, especially in hearing that answer, where design came into your life. You study, I've talked to many designers who have gone on to study anthropology or realize that their work is anthropological in nature. Probably, I probably am guilty of that mm -hmm, also, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but you are the opposite. You're somebody who studied anthropology, both, both undergrad, graduate, um, PhD is in anthropology yeah, too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Um, where did, well, the, where did the design part kind of fit in there or how did that well, come in? I mean, I think it started, so it started with art, right? So I've always, as a kid, I always did art. And that always, I and I would say what that meant is that I was always interested in the relationship between form and content and context, right? Mm. Um, so I would go and, you know, even in, in, in my undergrad or in my grad studies, you know, like you have to do like a response, a weekly response to the readings or something. Right. And, and yeah. my, and I would, you know, I would submit a drawing or a comics, you know, strip or, uh, or an, a wall of text in terms of like a, a you know, well-formed argument and essay. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, and again, I, I didn't even, wasn't even aware of the term design in that same sort of way that I am now. I just knew that, the the form of things was mm. just as important as the content that I was that I was putting forth. So when I did, um, when I, even when I did my uh, um, when I did my PhD, every chapter had a different form. So I did my PhD um, in Ethiopia. I did my PhD research in Ethiopia, and so what I was doing was using a lot of the vernacular forms of expression. So when you go to the north of Ethiopia, for example, they have, um, in the churches, they tell the story of the uh, Queen of Sheba and King Solomon in this kind of comic strip. Well, not comic, because it's not comedic, in this kind of graphic strip form, right? So I had an entire chapter that was telling kind of a story about like, well, interracial miscegenation between Italy and, and Ethiopia um, in that comic strip form. Um, and then like in the east, you have, um, so the city of Harare, which is one of the fourth, um, fourth holiest cities um, in the Islamic faith. Um, and in fact, like the prophet Muhammad, when he was kicked out of Saudi Arabia, he actually was a refugee in some ways in Ethiopia. And so, um, so in that chapter was, told, was designed in the form of Quranic surahs. And again, the content was all the content of my observations right, of right. what was going on in, in the city. But it was uh, done in the structure of a Quranic uh, surah, so like as if you were reading yeah. the page. And again, and, and then I did weird things where like I had side notes instead of footnotes because I'm like, but it just makes more sense to read side to side. Why would you go to the bottom or go to the end? <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> That's so and interesting. Then, 
and again, this is again, and it wasn't like I wasn't, you know, like I didn't hang out like at design at, at Stanford or anything. I just knew that like the form of these things mattered and how they get communicated. And if I'm going to build this content of knowledge, I need to give it the most appropriate form that speaks to the experience of being there and interacting with it. Then I went to go work into high tech consulting. And I, and I remember coming into um, eLab, right, which is where I started. And that eventually became Sapient. And I remember coming to eLab and they showing me kind of all the work. And I'm like, I found my people. They're designers. <laughs> right. These people are they're called designers. No wonder I've been feeling so alienated in my anthropology department. <laughs> like nobody understood me. I mean, I would get bonuses for like the drawings that I would do on the edge of my foot, but no one really understand me. And suddenly I have people, we speak the same language and they understand me, right? You know, before you went to eLab or or maybe as you were doing that, as you were studying anthropology, what was was there a goal? What does what does an anthrop someone who studies anthropology what do they go on to do usually? You go to you go on to teach anthropology in the university, and you go and do more research and write books and all those things about the places that you've visited. Um, so, and so I intended to do that, but again, I always did it in different ways. Even as an undergrad, um, for I it wasn't so I did. Um, the project I did before I did my thesis, I, I told the story of Prometheus and Homo habilis, right? Because Homo habilis was the, 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 the early human, right? That discovered mm -hmm. fire, how to use fire. Um, I created actually a, a puppet show. <laughs> okay. And I, you know, and I, and I was working with this puppeteer, so Robert Smythe. So I made I made from scratch Bunraku, which was Japanese form yeah. of puppet. I made from scratch these beautiful um, sort of uh, Japanese inspired um, shadow puppets. I made mm. all these sort of costumes. I you know learned how to make a fire safely, um, and I told the story using masks, which I made and and puppets and that to me like you know like the 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 thesis that i did like the following year in my senior year i still think is inferior to the thesis that i presented uh, through that <laughs> right. through that puppet like again deeply informed studied researched <laughs> um exploration of what it what's the human relationship to fire right uh, that's exactly kind of where I was taking that question about what someone who studies anthropology go on to do, because I imagined it was write books, write academic papers, teach. And I was curious if this kind of experimenting with form, whether it's comics or puppets, was that seen as a as a, a barrier to that? Or was that accepted? Or did you get pushback to kind of presenting this research in different ways. So going back to my PhD dissertation, um, the comment when I turned it in was that I didn't break any rules, <laughs> but afterwards they're going to have to rethink the rules of how you do it, right? So I, mm. I stayed within their notion of what the format was, but I did, like I said, I did all kinds of weird things. Like I said, side notes versus... Uh, footnotes. I did, um, I, you know, this was like, we could have 
desktop publishing. So I had all these images everywhere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that I had entire passages that were in um, um, Arabic Gia script, right? Because you had now that through the computers, you had the technology to be able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a thing where... Um, <laughs> One of my dissertation advisors said, um, it's a good thing, Dory, you're a genius. Because <laughs> I actually don't I actually don't know what to do with this, but I know you're brilliant and you're smart, so I'm just gonna let hmm. it go. <laughs> that's not that's not bad. I guess that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it's a little backhanded compliment, but it's yeah. well, my thing is that they didn't they so I said there was difficulties and I did have to have the conversation saying it's like you know, I could write you a traditional dissertation, right? Mm-hmm, in my first mm-hmm. chapter, I wrote imperfect academies just to mm-hmm. show that, I'm, I, and to explain why the rest of this is not going to look at traditional academies because I have this relationship yeah. between form, cult, form, content, and context, right? Um, right? So I did all that explanation in perfect academies. Um, and then I just went, again, I just, I expressed things in the way that I thought was most appropriate for who I was trying to embrace, which was not the, my professors. I was trying to embrace the Ethiopian community who had generously shared with me these stories. So I wanted to give it back to them in a form that would resonate with them, right? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were saying that. I was thinking to, about your answer about what design anthropology is and, and the sometimes you know, gap that we see in the values and the experience. And in a way, the academic paper is kind of an example of that in that mm-hmm. that the academic paper often or academic, you know, writing in general uh, is exclusive, is dense, is for a specific audience. And by rethinking that medium, you mm-hmm. you open it up to different people. And so you were kind of enacting what would later become your career in a way yeah. uh, you know through those through those uh those those like thesis dissertations We're, yeah. I'm, I I don't mean to no, no, I, it's I, good. I, I don't mean to I don't want this to sound like I am against uh you know anthropology or or academic um well we, as know, anthropologists they're like as as anthro you know like the thing about I think is cool about studying anthropology is that um in other disciplines, you are the expert. Mm. The thing is that being an anthropologist is that the five-year-old who belongs that cult of that culture is more of an expert than you are. Okay, <laughs> right. And so well, there's a there's a built-in humility that comes with being um, to to being trained as an anthropologist that I think works against some of our um, notions and expectations of what it means to be an academic, right? Like you don't, you don't dress up in a suit or whatever. You're normally dressed up in some, you know, sandals and whatever, whatever that's comfortable Mm -hmm. for you. Your expertise only comes in, um, in some ways sharing the deeper knowledge that everyone else that you spoke to (laughs) has about a culture or situation um, and and you're more just the you're just more of the 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 storyteller and the um, and the traveler right to communicate those stories where they and it goes both ways like I was telling lots of stories about life in the United States when I was in Ethiopia and then telling stories about life in Ethiopia when I was back in the United States right 
you started answering exactly what my next question was going to be because I, I think you're speaking a bit about how design, and I don't mean to put design and anthropology so as two separate things necessarily, but mm-hmm. how design can help tell the stories that you're telling as an anthropologist, how it can shape them, how you can communicate them to a to a specific audience or, or group of people. And I'm kind of curious about the the flip side, you know, what designers can take from anthropology. And you were starting to say that about that kind of humility, about asking mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but are, are there other things from that kind of early education of yours that you think applies to design? Well, you know, and the the work that I was doing and my theorization that I was doing like in the early 2000s or so, I talked a lot about the yin and yang of design anthropology. Mm -hmm. So I used to like go to AIGA conferences every year and I would talk about the yin and yang of design Mm -hmm. anthropology because in some ways they they work really. um, So again, yin yang coming from Taoist principles. Um, and so drawing upon that as a metaphor to talk about the way in which design and anthropology interacts with the world. So like, you know, anthropology being about yin energy where you're sitting back, you're observing, you're letting kind of like the, the experience of the world flow through you, mm. where design is kind of yang energy where you're kind of pushing forward, you're intervening, you're interacting in the mm. world. And so I always talked about you need to have that balance, right? So if you if you're all yang, then you could be really destructive. And <laughs> we can see from what we're doing to the environment, what we've done to sort of cultures, like how bad all of that pure yang energy could be. But if you're just sitting back and observing things and you're not trying to bring forth any positive change in the world, that's just as bad, right? So you need to have that that balance which is constantly dynamic and shifting between that energy of i'm gonna i'm gonna learn i'm gonna absorb i'm gonna understand um, in a deep way and then i'm gonna use that understanding to be able to act in very specific ways with great intention in order mm-hmm. to do what is right for the 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 stakeholders in some ways of, of whatever experience right. that i'm trying to co-create with them right Something that comes up on the podcast often and a a topic that I'm just personally very interested in is this notion of the, what I call the designer savior complex, you know, that the designer can just come in. (laughs) Yes, that I criticize all the time. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And and, all the time. This, this, I mean, in, in talking about the kind of humility of the anthropologist, I think we can contrast that with the often arrogance of the designer that design can solve you know, any of these problems and design alone can solve any of these problems. A designer can go into, you know, just drop themselves in anywhere in the world and, you know, problem solved. And what I think what's interesting that you're saying and that I agree with is that design also is the, or it sometimes is part of the cause of those problems also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that this idea of kind of designer top-down change no longer works if it ever did work it never um, worked it never worked and 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 on the podcast i i talk a lot about this idea that design is is ideology made artifact that it's taking these ideas points of view ways of seeing the world and it's turning them into reality design is not a purely intellectual activity it actually mm-hmm. has kind of like real world impacts and i'm wondering how you think about that 
both as someone who is kind of like rooted in the design world now, but with that kind of anthropological background, mm -hmm. how we can start as designers to, you know, reshape those hierarchies, rethink our our role in the process of solutions, but also our role in in causing the problems. How do you start to kind of articulate that and and kind of chart a way forward through that? Um, kind of one of the really fundamental uh, text of my intellectual influence is this book called Thinking with Things by Esther Pastore. And mm. so Esther Pastore is a always a design anthropologist and art anthropologist. And what has struck me, and I've taught about this, and I, re I reference it all the time, is, is this notion that um, aesthetics is our first technology of control, mm. and thus our first technology of power. And mm. what aesthetics does is it controls our relationship to the human world and socially with each other, but also is our it was our technology in some ways to try to control our relationship to the natural world as well. Right. So within that framework, um, she talks about how, um, again, at different levels of social organization, we've had, we have different aesthetics. And I won't go through that whole entire thing because, uh, you know, it's a good argument. You could go read it. <laughs> yeah. um, but for we'll put me, a link on the, on the episode yeah. page. But for me, what's important to communicate that to, to young designers is to understand like aesthetics, which as a designer, you have expertise in aesthetics, right? right? That right. is your expertise to know what material to use, to know uh, what form to give it, to know uh, how it needs to flow and interact. Like that is, that is the knowledge that you have greater than other people. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> that is yeah. where your value comes, right? That aesthetics is a technology. It's a technology in the same way that the computer is a technology, mm -hmm. uh, pencil mm -hmm. is a technology, and as a technology, it is meant to do something. So what are you having it do, right? Are you having it um, trying to convince other people to follow this brand um, as if they would follow a powerful leader? Um, are you using it to create a sense of like harmony and understanding because again, technologies do whatever you intentions you set for them to do, right? Um, and so, so for me, that understanding, and, and, and I do it in the context because everyone's like, you know, oh, you're a designer, go make this look pretty, right? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. pretty, let me show you pretty, right? Because pretty is about aesthetics. So that pretty can decide whether or not people are going to buy your products or not. That pretty is going to decide whether or not uh, we understand this information about the climate. <laughs> this is going to uh, have people able to fill out your form online, right? So all this prettiness, all this aesthetics, aesthetics is real power. And so this is the part where I can understand designers are like, yes, we will solve everything, right? Um, but again, is you understand, you have to understand what it is your intentionality around what it is that you're seeking to control, which means you control two things, right? You control your relationship to the natural world. So you have to understand your relationship to the natural world, right? So that's where sustainability becomes important because sustainability is about how do we rethink our relationship to the natural world? Do we just, do we pollute it? Do we extract from it without giving things back? 
do we create a sort of cycle in which things actually flow with one another? Because nature itself is really good in terms of making sure everything has its purpose in place and use in uh, in creating harmonious systems of flourishing for everything, right? Um, and then our social relations, right? Because I, I do talks now and then I talk about these are the ways in which design has been harmful. Every time we have issues, appropriation and misappropriation of indigenous culture, that's design being harmful. You know, every time when we talk about some new, exciting, efficient um, <laughs> invention that only serves to replicate or deepen a master-slave relationship, right. a lot right. of our technology, right? Siri, go fetch this. Siri, mm -hmm. 150 years ago, would have been a black woman going right. to go get right. that for you, right? right. So right. anytime we build those kinds of relationships, that's designed doing harm, right? Anytime we put up racist propaganda, that's designed doing harm. So for every time, I love pulling out these examples every time someone's like, design's going to save the world. It's like, well, can first design save the box of pancakes, which has been causing me pain for the last 40 <laughs> right. years because it keeps representing right. this slavery narrative in a nostalgic way that is about the degradation of my peoples. <laughs> Right. Once I mean, you solve that so... one, let's talk about solving the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you are 100% right. And you can look at every one of those uh, personal assistants on our devices. And, and, and the fact that they're gendered female is mm -hmm. encoding, you know, we're seeing this kind of ideology both implicitly and explicitly in some cases. And I don't mean to, I'm, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. And I don't mean to kind of gloss over all of your work, but you're a little bit similar to me in that you worked kind of in, in the industry for a bit before returning to, to academia like myself. And I'm interested in how these questions manifest themselves for you in the classroom. Um, and the reason I ask that is, is, is two reasons. One, um, I often have students who are just like, I just want to get a job. You know, I, I, I just want to be a designer. I just want to get a job. I, I want to like learn the skills that I need so I can get a good job. And I think that's a totally valid question. But I also push up against that because I also want to talk to them about all of these other questions. And that balance is something that I'm kind of constantly thinking about and how you... I'm interested in kind of even on the curriculum level, you're, you're a dean at OCAD, so you're kind of looking over all this across all different types of design uh, fields also. How do you think about not just bringing these into the curriculum as like an add-on, but actually reshaping how we teach design? So this is kind of core to the, the design project in a way. Well, I mean, that's the work we're doing at OCAD when we talk about decolonizing design, mm -hmm. right? That we, we want to produce uh, respectful designers, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, I'm, and again, you know, I'm a dean, and even though most deans don't teach, I make sure I teach every year. Actually, this year, mm -hmm. because of COVID, I'm teaching two classes. I've taught because uh, I've had to do some backup. And um, the class I'm teaching right now is actually our third year advertising class. And, and, I'll, and I'll use that as an example to talk about, like, how you do it. So... Um, in the advertising class, it's kind of like three layers of narrative that's going on. There's uh, the layer of like, this is the advertising process. So you go from a return brief, you develop three concepts, the client chooses one, 
And then you do a proof of concept for, in this case, they're developing a digital brand strategy. So that's kind of like hmm, the normal narrative. There's a sub-narrative that's happening because uh, I've paired um, the groups of students with Indigenous and Black small businesses that are being negatively impacted by COVID because they need to shift to digital. So their clients are not large corporations or even large agencies who's asked us to do projects on their on their behalf. The Their clients are people for whom this work will be directly meaningful because it is helping them think through the kinds of problems that they have in terms of how to make their business work in this context of COVID, right? Right. And they're Black and Indigenous, which because it, it brings us to the meta le- level of what's happening in the course, where we're doing all these critical readings around how advertising has been harmful mm. to Black mm. and Indigenous communities. But also I'm bringing in Black and Indigenous and other POC uh, special guests to talk who are working, you know, like last, last, last guest was Forrest Young, who's a mm-hmm. chief, um, you know, global chief design director yeah. for um, Wolf Olins. And he talked about like how they do work, but how they do work in ways that are meaningful to embrace the diversity of uh, individuals and communities that they need to embrace. Right. We have Mark mm-hmm. Rutledge, Mark Rutledge, who's a, um, uh, Ojibwe uh, designer, and he walked us through a project where, again, it's like what was really special is that we did all these community consultations. We made sure that the imagery that we use, we, like we couldn't trust the archival imagery around Indigenous people because we knew it was staged. So we had to create this new imagery. We um, we built in language. So the, lang- the, the website was in English, but it was also in... Uh, um, um, Anishinaabe Moen, so the Anishinaabe language, right? So we were bringing in these individuals who can talk about like what it means to be a indigenous black POC person working mm. within the industry, how mm. the industry has changed, and yeah. then what are the three or five tips that they need to understand as young people to be able to a, to br- have their presence continue the transformation of the industry. So that's a class I'm teaching each yeah, week. That's so uh, interesting. Every Wednesday. Um, and yeah. and and that's how you bring it all together, right? So it's like again, we're following like the advertising process, but we're having setting up this meta conversation theoretically around what advertising has or has not done. But we're taking that theoretical critique and we're putting it into real life practice because you have to develop. You can't reproduce those stereotypes because your client partner will have be able to respond back to you to say, this is a little misguided, right? Can you talk a little bit about the process of decolonizing that curriculum? And and again, the reason I'm asking that question, I'm, I'm kind of curious about... Uh, you know, basically like how it, how it went over. Was there, was there pushback there? I mean, and and I'm asking that because, because like I, I've definitely seen schools that are, you know, progressive liberal in urban areas that, you know, still do design histories that are, you know, all the, the white designers. And when, when there's some challenge there, there's, there, 
they, they want to make sure that we're talking about, you know, Paul Rand. Um, <laughs> and and I'm, I'm kind of curious how that process has been for you and how you've seen it actually kind of like change how the students are thinking about these things and, and maybe well, even the faculty too, honestly. Well, I mean, it's the faculty that has to change. And then they, the, the students are the one who support and advocate and become the reason for the change. So first of mm. all, it's a long process. Um, it can accelerate pretty quickly, but it's a long process. So even before I, I've been at OCAD about now four and a half years. So even before I arrived, there was a lot of work that individual faculty members did to help prepare the institution for these changes. And we had, you know, we had government things that shifted in Canada. So we had the Truth and Reconciliation um, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Committee um, recommendations around addressing um, Indigenous history and knowledge and ways of being and language in the curriculum. And so that's where a lot of the work started. Um, the institution had to, the, you know, President at the time, Sarah Diamond, established a task force on underrepresentation of, um, of faculty so they could gather the data, but also set up the programs that allow us to bring in diverse faculty into our body. Um, and then I think I came in, in some ways, like the advantage of being a design anthropologist, I feel, is that I can accelerate processes of change. And I do so because the anthropology gives me a background to understand people, their values, you know, what's going on, like how the system and the structures are all working. And then design gives me the opportunity to find that point of leverage in order to sort of shift or pivot again and communicate the necessity of that shift and pivot in the way that allows people to find their places in the change and be mm -hmm. able to move forward, right? So I use right. my design anthropology skills every single day as, yeah. a, as, a, as a dean. Um, and I, I mean, I'm very, and it's very interesting, right? Because there's a, there's a way in which the institution has adopted a lot of the practices that, I, <laughs> that I've brought in nice. around um, sort of yeah. methodologies of like, why are we sitting and having this conversation? Let's get out the post-it notes and, you know, whatever. Now we do digital post-it right. notes and workshopping right. through things. And so they've brought those practices in there um, as part of, again, in some ways, the transformation in and of itself. Like, why are we sitting in this yeah. meeting, everyone giving PowerPoint presentations, no one actually listening? Why are we not working together to figure out what the solutions will be, not just listening to the problems forever and ever, right? Um, within, so to, to get back to sort of the directness of your question, there's a lot of work. So we had to work with faculty to understand what decolonization means. So we had like a whole year and a half where we were like, let's have panel discussions on what decolonization means. What, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? Uh, we brought in external experts around the kinds of who could model some of the kinds of curriculum changes that we were would want to aspire to. Um, then we had to bring in the faculty and it's the, you know, we, we had in the indigenous cluster hire. So we brought in for design three, our first three full-time indigenous faculty members. And so they did the work helping their colleagues understand the, the perspectives and the lived experiences that they bring and how they can be brought into the curriculum, right? We just, last year, we had the Black Cluster Hire bringing in our first five Black faculty members, and they're doing the same 
sort of thing saying this is what the black experiences is this is what it means this is how I see design and this is how I'm building that into the curriculum and let's all share together around the things that you could bring into the curriculum because you may not have the lived experience or the expertise but these are some of the concepts that are free for you to use and then these are the things that are sacred that if you don't have the the lived experience or expertise you probably shouldn't be bringing those into <laughs> the classroom but right. you can bring also your i mean the the thing about decolonization is that it decolonizes everyone like so so there's a lot of amnesia that happens even in European history in the way in which they present themselves. Because if you had to leave your home country to come somewhere mm. else, there mm -hmm. is trauma in that process of leaving. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that whole mm -hmm. notion of like, I'm going to forget where I came from was in some ways a trauma response to whatever was happening in Europe that required your grandparents, great grandparents or whatever to be able to leave. So there is a, yeah. there's a, process of sort of cultural reclamation that actually has to happen among the European students as well so that they can share in that heritage yeah. uh, with others as e without hierarchy right equally without mm -hmm. hierarchy right, right so decolonization in some ways is about dismantling the hierarchy that says that European aesthetics European ways of yeah. thinking yeah. European ways of expressing are the model to which everyone aspires to to sort of say right, there's basically right. come as you are come as you share we will value it all but with the underpinning of indigenous ways of thinking and knowing because indigenous ways of thinking and knowing allows for and affor affords for that sense of relationality without hierarchy mm. right I, I have a, a very specific question that I want to make sure um, that I ask carefully and 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 phrase the way I'm I'm thinking about it. Um, and and even just your previous answer helped connect things that I have been trying to articulate and and wrestle with as a teacher, as 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 a as a white male teacher in classes of primarily not white male students, and thinking about that hierarchy and how I am in the classroom and the, the, the readings that I bring in. And you've talked a lot about separating design from the kind of modernist project. And I think mm -hmm. especially modernism in graphic design um, is still held up, speaking of hierarchies, as kind of, you know, the pinnacle of design. All design is kind of critiqued against that. Mm -hmm. And when I teach design history, I was realizing that I was kind of subconsciously doing that. I've been trying to you know, move away from, uh, you know, chronological histories, mm -hmm. kind of moving away from this happened, then this happened, then this happened, trying to get away from this is still what we consider good design. Mm -hmm. um, because that that project was, you know, the international type style. It was, just like, <laughs> it was universality. It was about erasing these differences. It was about, you know, all this stuff that you're talking about. And, and I think, you know, to, to, to be honest, I think I've done a pretty good job of, of, thinking about that historically and how to do that. But then when it actually comes to the classroom and work being made today, I have found both in myself and when I see other critics giving work, uh, giving feedback or other teachers giving feedback that we still consciously or not fall back on that as the criteria. Um, and so we can talk about decolonizing design history. We can talk about uh, indigenous knowledge. We can talk about 
the the black experience or or hear about the the black experience but then when it comes to actually looking at students work we're still like oh it needs more white space or <laughs> can you simplify well, this or the grid and how do we how do how do we connect though like i don't i i i'm i'm so, i mean this is where you know you what i mean to, yeah i mean like this is where you where as a teacher you have to do the work to be able to connect with where your students are and I, and I think about the I think about it this way is that my role as an instructor is to understand the intentionality mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the student and then to to be able to guide them and coach them of where that intentionality is made manifest or not made manifest. Right. And that and that's how you get away from from putting it against some quote unquote objective standard, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Of of aesthetics is like, no, what is who are you? Where you come from? What are your intentionalities? Who are you trying to communicate to? Um, what are the ways in which they prefer to communicate? And then right. again trying to guide them through the the process of saying, well, you're saying that you want to do that, but it looks like you're trying to do this. You know, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. and sometimes again, you may not have enough of the knowledge or expertise, so you guide them to sort of say, "Well, well, you know, put it up on Instagram, send it out <laughs> right. to a bunch of people that you think with it, and then see what their what their response might be." Because again, what right. you're trying to gauge is you have an intentions that you're trying to make manifest in the world. Is it coming mm-hmm. through in the way that you expect yeah. it to? Right? Yeah. And you only know that by. Um, again, embracing the main people you're trying to communicate. And sometimes as an instructor, you can be a kind of an avatar for the lack of clarity in their ideas and then prompt them in some ways to go back and think, is this my true intentions or is is this the way in which I need to express this intention? Maybe I can try something too and give them the confidence to take the risk to find right. the multiple ways to express it. Again, coming out of their authentic sense of self, right? Right. And and that that in a way, you know, also flips these hierarchies and flips this um, you know, the 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 dominant critique format in the classroom because it's no longer about defending the work or or arguing the work or pleasing the professor, which like hopefully it never is, but you know, there's always mm-hmm. a little bit of that. And and it becomes a project for the whole class. Like in talking yeah. about like this way, it's like everybody has to kind of be then thinking about this. It's it's yeah. not just this kind of, you know, dialogue between professor and student. It's it's then that changes how everybody is giving feedback, which I really um I really like that idea. One of the things I loved when I was teaching at University of Illinois, Chicago, is that I I would go to sort of the art and design and architecture critiques because they were all sort mm-hmm. of scheduled at the end of the semester. And it was one of those things like um, uh, I hadn't realized that like I had become a favorite uh, critic, right, <laughs> um, that the students would like when I had not like like students would sort of say to me, like once I left University of Illinois at Chicago, where like they were like, I really missed having you in critique. Or if I was a one that I couldn't attend because there was a conflict, they were like, we really mm-hmm. missed you in critique. <laughs> and I was trying to understand like, why do you, why, why do you miss me in critique? <laughs> yeah. And they, and they said in the way that, again, we're talking about is that the kinds of questions I asked were never about 
again, are yeah. you meeting this objective, this standard, you need to more have more white space or whatever, like, you know, or, you know, the literature of this is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the, the question I would always ask yeah. would be like, like, again, like, well, who are you trying to embrace with this? And, and what's, and what's your intentionality? In it? And then like, what's like the wider cultural ramifications of this, yeah. if you put it out in the world? And, and then, if it's something really private for you, like then what are the what are the boundaries that you're putting in place between what you know? And so like they were like so they were like you would bring like a whole different level of conversation around mm -hmm. the work that um no one else asked us about and we didn't have to think and all of a sudden we had to think about these things, right? And so yeah. I think yeah. more of that would be um you know, and again, it, it requires work. Like when I work with students, I have to, you know, do a crash understanding of whatever's the cultural things that they're doing. And then again, it's, there's a lot of humility, right? Because I, they are the, they are the experts in their right. lived experiences. They are the experts in that which they're trying to express. My job is just to coach them to help get right. that out of them, right? Right, right. I'm curious what you're thinking about right now. Where are your kind of research interests? What are the topics that are exciting you? What's what's kind of next for you at this, at this I, point? I mean, there's no next. I'm still deeply, deeply <laughs> engaged in like this this process of decolonizing, you know, design education and scaling it and what does it mean and what are the structures that need to be in place and how is it constantly evolving? I mean, we've we've had this, you know, we're having conversation um, so colleagues and I the other day around like how, um, you know, like before I, when I came to Canada, I learned the term BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, and POC, mm. which again, coming from the States, I'm like, well, but we're all people of color and like people of color was invented by Black women in order to create a more inclusive structure for those other women who shared similar interests. So how all of a sudden Black people get excluded from POC, right? Uh, and learning again the specificity of why it needed to exist here. But we were talking about the fact that like now there's kind of this evolution that's happening in that in this term where it's like like say IBOC, 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 mm. POC, where indigenous wants to be first and mm. uh, POC, they're like, oh, but we need to break it all down because now you put us all together and we have <laughs> differentiations too. And so um so in this process kind of like decolonization diversity equity inclusion what i'm thinking about is how as our sophistication increases around these ideals mm. um that the terms are are shifting the goals are um um are different and and the kinds of alliances and coalitions that are being built are much stronger um, mm. And so I'm really fascinated by by this journey of evolution around these ideas, especially as now, you know, coming out of the events of this summer with the murder of mm -hmm. George Floyd and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, the, our sense of disconnected yet connectedness because of COVID-19 and social distancing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. how those things are all kind of coalescing into yeah. a new understanding of what our relationships need to be with each other and with the environment. And that's what decolonization is really about, is art, that yeah. articulation of a new set of relationships, which, again, basically 
without hierarchy. And by not having that hierarchy, you create the space for indigenous sovereignty. My last question, which is the question you send all of these conversations, I would just love to know what you're reading right now. Ah, I don't get to read. <laughs> I'm reading student uh, essays. That's what I'm reading. Um, so the, the I would say the book that I've been reading um, lately is, and and I'm gonna is um, my grandmother's hands, um, um, Resma Menachem. Mm. Uh, so it's he's a, um, a trauma. Um, specialist. I think he's been mentioned yeah. maybe otherwise yeah. a trauma specialist and um, coming out of the events of the summer, like his articulation of, of the way in which the body understands trauma and that the black body experiences trauma in a particular way, the white body experiences trauma in particular and the police body experiences trauma in a different way. And there's a kind of triangulation of relationships between those positionalities mm-hmm. Um, that explain our social dysfunction <laughs> right now. Um, it's been very valuable for me to read as a way to kind of understand the moment that we're in and how right. we've been in this moment for a long time. But it's also very valuable to, for me to read and understand because it's a workbook, right? So it's a workbook of how you work mm. through that trauma, how you process, metabolize that trauma so that you are not... Um, so that you're responding to the world with a sense of clarity um, and and not responding um, with that sense of, of trauma-based fear that shuts down your capacity to think and feel, right? Right. So I've been reading and going, and, and, and in the fact that it's a workbook for me is super... Um, irritating because i'm a person like who just like reads the books like you know plows the books and it's like no before you go to the next chapter you have to do 10 minutes of humming and breathing exercises and i'm like no i want to get to the next bit of knowledge right (laughs) Um, so it's been also a good discipline for me in terms of getting out of my head and into my body Um, and and forcing myself to because especially if you're um very active and busy in the way that my life is structured to be um taking those moments to just breathe and and reflect um and being forced to do so is um is part of how i stay clear and healed so that i can be a source of clarity and healing and understanding to others including my faculty you know my staff the university itself, as well as all of the students to whom I am responsive to, right, as a leader. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. Dory, thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. I love this so much. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jared. This episode was recorded on February 17th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.